you've got your Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to find Isaiah chapter 9. Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be right at the beginning of chapter 9. Twenty-five years and 12 days ago, about 200 miles to the southeast of here, I heard the words that we're about to read together, and it changed my life forever. My entire life changed in an instant. I was familiar with the Bible and familiar with God, but I was indifferent and presumptuous and ungrateful and very self-righteous. And then I heard these words, and God changed my heart and brought me to life. And that was 12 years after I was baptized. God's ways are mysterious, and his word is power, creative power. I was a sophomore in college. Well, what's so special about these words? Well, they're about Jesus and how he was born to bring healing to people and bring light to people who are in darkness. It's a Christmas message, the words we're about to read, It's about the coming of the light into a dark world on a healing and saving mission. So let's let God speak, okay? Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. The theme today is Christ was born to heal. If you're able to stand, let's stand for the reading of the word. This is Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shined. Wow. Lord, thank you for this beautiful word that points to an even more beautiful uh, Savior, the incarnate word of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bless the word with all of your creative power to do for everyone. what you so graciously and unpredictably did for me and have done for me and for so many others. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I invite you to have a seat. I'm going to talk a little bit about healing today, this theme of Christ being born to heal. 
It's going to take a minute to, to tease all that out because the word heal or healing is not in the passage that we just read, but the, the theme is here. And the first thing we want to say, this is really just a high-level observation before we get into the text itself. And this is the first um, point in the outline, if you've got that, if you're following along. The first point is just to say something about the plan for healing, how it is God's plan to heal his people. God's plan for his people is healing. This is something that's proclaimed throughout the Old Testament, including here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a really long book, 66 chapters. But within those 66 chapters, we can identify different themes that carry through the whole book. Okay, now, let's talk about Isaiah's negative theme and then his positive theme. Negatively, his theme is rebellion, see that word all through the book of Isaiah. Negatively, the theme is rebellion. He, Isaiah begins his prophecy, prophecy famously with the idea of the rebellion of Israel. Hear, O heavens, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Chapter one, verse two, right off the bat. I've brought up children, they're in rebellion against me. Those are the opening words of his prophecy. Rebellion is his negative theme. And we know something about that. It's a rebellion that we've all participated in. Positively, Isaiah's theme is healing. Healing is a positive thing. Healing is a good thing. God's people are rebelling, rebelling, but he will heal them. That idea is prominent toward the beginning of the book. We see it in chapter 6. Prominently, It's prominent toward the end of Isaiah's book, chapter 57. God says in chapter 57, I have seen his ways, speaking of Israel. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him in his mourners. I will heal him. Healing is also prominent in what's probably the best-known chapter in Isaiah, chapter 53, the prophecy of the substitutionary atonement. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Then you come to the very end of the Old Testament. We're talking about how God's plan to heal his people is prominence proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. We come to the very end of the Old Testament, the very last chapter of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, chapter 4, among his very last words, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. All this to say that God's plan for his people, in spite of their rebellion, is to heal them. We see it proclaimed in the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament and we see the healing pictured. Proclaimed in the Old, pictured in the New. Someone asked you, hey, what did Jesus do while he was on earth? What what was his activity? What was he up to? What what was he doing? If you were to start listing the things that he did, probably in your top three, or at least you'd you'd have this one mentioned, you'd say, well, he healed people. Yeah, he he did heal people. He healed people physically. Healing, such a prominent part of his ministry. And the the physical healings that he did for people, they didn't just help the person for a little while physically. 
wasn't just a nice thing that he did for a few people. All of those healings authenticated his right and his power to heal people on the inside and make people whole spiritually. And of course, they also symbolize the coming of his kingdom that we're talking about almost every week uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke. They symbolize the coming of his kingdom, the initial um, inroads that his kingdom was making in the world, that his kingdom will be a kingdom of peace and wholeness and wellness among all creation. The Hebrews had a, a word for that, shalom. Complete wellness and wholeness and peace among all of creation. Creation restored to what it should be. Healing proclaimed in the old, pictured in the new. God's plan for his people is healing. And as we said, the word is not here in our passage, but the concept is here. For God's people, there will be a reversal in their spiritual health. If we backed up and took time to look at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, so the the passage and the words that come just before what we read, we would see this detailed description of the, the sickness of these ancient people that belonged to God but had rebelled against him. So Isaiah spends a lot of time detailing what it's like when a people who belong to God have turned their back on God and how God is now hiding his face from his people. He's talking about the lostness of Israel and how now they're, instead of inquiring and praying to God, now they're inquiring of necromancers and mediums. That's chapter 8, verse 19. He's describing this life apart from God, the vast, depressing, empty contours of life without God. Chapter 8, verse 21, just before what we read. This is what it's like for a people living apart from God. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold... Distress and darkness in the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then chapter 9 begins. And it begins with this contrastive word, but. They will be thrust into thick darkness, but. Something is going to change. God's people are in rebellion. They're suffering the consequences. There is gloom and there's anguish in life apart from God. He's hiding his face from them. They will be thrust into thick darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. See, those words in verse one of chapter nine are borrowed from the end of chapter eight. And remember, the chapter divisions are not original. There are no chapter divisions in the original text. There will be no more gloom and anguish. Before there was gloom and anguish. But there will be no more gloom and anguish. And now begins the, what we would have to call the incomparable chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 that Handel borrowed 
so heavily from for his oratorio, The Messiah. And by the way, that's where I heard the words when I mentioned a moment ago that I heard the words 25 years and 12 days ago. I was listening to that performance. I was part of that performance, a tiny little part. And this is the chapter that gives us for unto us a child is born. Later on, later on down, we're not studying that today, but chapter nine begins with the promise of healing. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. God will heal his people. And the the gold of these first two verses of Isaiah 9, the gold of this passage is, is the description of how God is going to heal his people. That's the great contribution of these two verses. How is God going to bring healing to this lost, 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 lost people? So let's, let's look at it. How is he going to do it? And these are the last two points. Simply the place of healing and the person who heals. Okay, that's how we're going to divide the rest of our time. Chapter, or excuse me, verse one talks about the place of healing. Verse two talks about the person who heals. So the place of healing, this is verse one, okay? We're going to say two things about verse one. Here's the first thing we want to say is that healing Began in the place of first wounds. God begins his healing project for his people in the place of first wounds. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Verse 1 is a little bit hard because there's some geography involved, and probably unfamiliar geography for, for many of us. Here's what we need to know about the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, right? Those were two of the tribes of Israel, two of the 12 tribes. They were, these two tribes were allotted lands in the north between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. So northern territories. When Israel's enemy, the Assyrians, attacked, when their enemy came upon them and overthrew the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. So we're talking about the year 722 BC. When the Assyrians attacked, when it all ended, these two territories were the first to be struck by the enemy. Zebulun and Naphtali, the first two to go down. When we read in verse one that in the former time he brought into contempt these two territories, And we wonder, what does that mean that he brought them into contempt? What is that talking about? They were the first tribes to have to leave the land. They were the first tribes exiled. The Assyrians took them first. And they were the first to have foreigners resettled in their territories. That's the contempt that's being spoken of here. We might think about a group of um, school children. You may have been one of these groups before. A group of school children who are all misbehaving. They're all doing the wrong thing, but the teacher turns around and only sees one of them misbehaving. And that one gets detention. 
Everyone was doing the wrong thing, but that one suffered the consequences for it. And you can imagine the kind of contempt that that student is going to face when they meet up with all the rest of their classmates. They were the one that got caught and suffered the consequences first. That's Zebulun and Naphtali. Everyone was doing the wrong thing everywhere. They were the ones that got the consequences first. But here is the wonderful thing and the surprising thing that Isaiah reveals here. They who were the first to be punished would also be the first to see the glory of God. That is the reversal that's revealed here. The land that formerly was brought into contempt and the first to be deported because of idolatry would nevertheless also be the first to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus' public ministry began there. And Matthew makes a huge deal out of this in his gospel. Chapter 4, verse 19 of Matthew. He makes it so unmistakable. He points out specifically that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum to begin his public ministry. Capernaum. Where's Capernaum? Capernaum is in the land that belonged to Naphtali. He moved there on purpose. Matthew points out, so that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah right here might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. See, Matthew makes it unmistakable. Jesus moved there on purpose. He points out how Jesus started in the territory of Naphtali. And then we come to the Gospel of John, and John points out that Jesus went to a certain wedding in Cana, a wedding where he turned water into wine. And he, that he did this, John writes, he did this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. He manifested his glory there for the first time. Where is Cana? Cana is in the land that was allotted to Zebulun. These territories were the first to be punished. They were the first to incur wounds, but that's where the healing began. In that contemptible place. The second thing that we want to say, we're still talking about verse 1, the place of healing, okay? Why it's significant that healing began in Zebulun and Naphtali. Second thing we want to say is that it not only began in the place of first wounds, but also the place of greatest darkness. This was a dark, dark, dark place spiritually. It was a land of mixed peoples. God's people were not to intermarry with the surrounding nations. They were supposed to be a pure people to represent God to the nations. So Not intermarry so they wouldn't take on the practices of the other nations and serve their gods. But this area, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, was a long-standing melting pot. Hebrews mixing with Sidonians and Arameans and, and others. Mixed peoples, evil leadership. They never had a good king there. They had kings that built shrines to serve the pagan gods. And as a result, it became a place, of course, of compromised worship. From the time of the judges, you can read about this in Judges chapter 18, the Danites, 
set up their idols in the city of Dan. Remember that story from the book of Judges? So don't confuse the territory of Dan with the city of Dan. There's a territory of Dan that was allotted further south, but the city of Dan was built in the territory of Naphtali. That's where Jeroboam created the golden calves and set them up, and people would go and worship the golden calves. So almost from the very beginning, the people up in that area were compromised in their worship. They were serving idols instead of worshiping God. And the light of truth had been absent from this area for so long. Almost from the beginning, God was rejected. It's the great spiritual darkness of that place, and it was in this dark place that God chose to begin his healing work. Now, we've done a lot of work to get to this point, to ask the question, okay, what does all this mean for me? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us that God accomplished his healing in this way by starting in the place of shame and in the place of greatest darkness? One of the things that it means is that God can handle the shame and the darkness of your life and of your former life. If you are paralyzed from the shame of the things that you have done and the things that you have thought, bad decisions, bad actions, dark, dark, dark things. And if you feel very unworthy to go to God or to be in a church or to be around people who know and love Jesus, if you think that your past sin and your shame disqualifies you somehow from being close to God, these verses are for you. They are for people who are ashamed and guilty and unworthy. God chose this land of the deepest darkness that you can imagine to go be there first. To make those people the first recipients of light and grace and hope. He did not begin in this land because they were the best people and the most deserving. They were the least deserving. That's grace. He started there because it was the place of deepest darkness. Jesus went there on purpose. There's nothing too shameful to bring to Jesus. Nothing that you have done surprises or shocks God. You have not done anything that has not been done before you. God has seen it all. He has seen the darkness of it all and in all of us, and he sent his son into our darkness. The son came anyway for that very reason. 
That's the Christmas message. God moved into the darkest place, the place of contempt and shame, and let the light of his life shine there first. God loves you and sent his son for you to heal you and make you well and make you whole. Jesus is a healer. He comes to restore and not condemn. He comes to save and restore your relationship to your heavenly father that you were not designed to live apart from. And now we're talking about our final point. We've transitioned from talking about the place of healing to talking about the person who heals. Jesus is the light that's spoken of in verse 2. When Isaiah writes, on them has a light shined. The people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. He's not talking about light waves. He's not talking about a, a star or a big ball of gas. He's talking about a person foretelling the person of Jesus that shines in that dark place first. He's the one that they saw. A person. Not waves of light, a a person. He is the great light that shined on these people that were walking in darkness. It's not just Isaiah that calls Jesus the light. John calls him the light as well. We read that uh, passage at the beginning. The true light which was coming into the world the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself calls himself the light. I am the light of the world. It's him. Jesus is the light that brings healing to you. And the only other thing that we'll say about this light is that by design, God has chosen to heal you of your Sinful and rebellious life apart from him. He heals you, not by a guiding inner light, but by an external light. Healing does not come from within. It comes from without. Notice the words of verse 2. For the people walking in darkness, on them has a light shined. Not in them has a light shined on them. God has not placed a guiding inner light inside of you. As if the purpose of your life is to discover who your authentic self is and just be that and then you'll be happy. I've just got to say autobiographically, if I followed that path, if I followed that advice of just digging further inside to find out who my authentic self is and going out and trying to be that, I would be out of a job within about 48 hours. And I'd be pursuing a path that I thought would bring fulfillment, but it would bring depression and it would ruin my life. That's what would happen if I followed my guiding inner light. If anything good Anything healing in my life is going to happen. It has to be because an external light shines on me and heals me. The heart inside of me and inside of you is a liar and a God rejecter and is not to be followed. That's why God sends this glorious light of Jesus. Jesus is that light. He is an external light. 
Don't look for satisfaction or direction or healing inside of yourself. It's only as we look to the healing light that God provided that we are made well. And I want you to be made well. And the answer that you've been looking for is Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember the story from Sunday school about how Israel was wandering in the wilderness? They'd left Egypt. And even though God had done all these wonderful things for them, they were still not believing him. Still rebelling against him. They were like making idols out of gold. And do you remember this unbelievable story that God sent snakes to bite them? Isn't that scary? Fiery serpents, we read. God sent fiery serpents to bite them, and people were dying. And God told Moses, here's here's what I'm going to provide to deal with this. I want you to make a snake out of bronze, and I want you to put it on a pole, and I want you to lift it up in the air. And everyone who's bit by a snake, when they look at the serpent that's on a pole, will be healed and they will live. What is that? What kind of a... Why is that the remedy? What is God doing? People are dying and they need to be healed. And the answer is that you make a a snake, a serpent, you put out of bronze and put it on a pole and you lift it up and someone just looks at it and they're made well? What in the world is that? It's a pointer, isn't it? It's a pointer to a greater fulfillment because when Jesus of Nazareth comes to earth and on that dark night is talking with Nicodemus, he lets him know exactly what was going on when God told Moses to do that. He was saying to Nicodemus, that's me. That's my ministry to people. I'm going to be the one who's going to be lifted up. And if anyone looks at me, they will be healed. Not physically, but spiritually. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's how you're made well. We've all been bitten by the great serpent, Satan. Suffer the effects of this sin. We're all dying. And the only way to be made well, whatever you may think of God's remedy, the only way to be made well from this sickness of sin and death is to look at the one who's been lifted up for you, to simply look and believe. If you're hungry, if you're ashamed, if you're guilty, if you're wandering, Look to the one who was lifted up for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the light of the world. Do you know what that means? If he's the light of the world, that means he's your light. It means he's for you. Merry Christmas. God, thank you for this uh, light that you sent into the world. We confess Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Father, and by your creative power, I pray that you would open the eyes of sophomores in college, like me, 82-year-olds listening somewhere, 
pray you'd open the eyes of eight-year-olds, eight-year-olds who will be much more faithful and better stewards of this information than I ever was. Whatever, Whatever means you choose, Father, by the creative power of your word and by your grace, I pray you would show every person and cause them to really understand in their heart that they are in darkness and must look to the light who's been sent into the world. We pray in his holy name, amen.